0: Hi, this is Christian Schwartz, co-founder of Commercial Type. We've just opened our vault where you can find works in progress, upcoming releases, and even custom typefaces originally drawn from
1: magazines including Bloomberg Business Week, Bon Appetit, and T. Visit vault.commercialtype.com. Magazines are essentially like rock and roll music. They're like rock bands and they have runs and they put out a bunch of good albums and they're really popular. And then they get old and many of them just, you know, they go away because their time is come and gone. And a lot of that is because magazines don't exist in a vacuum. Their responses to cultural moments but like rock music, you know, rock music used to be an essential thing for our lives. And, you know, rock music is not urgent anymore and it's not essential. It's time is come and gone. It's not a really dynamic cultural force that moves the culture anymore. And neither do magazines. You know, we have to accept that fact.
2: This is Print is Dead, Long Live Print a podcast about magazines and the people who made and make them. I'm Deborah Bishop.
0: I'm Patrick Mitchell. To call designer Robert Newman ubiquitous might be an understatement. The entries on Bob's resume are A Name Dropper's Dream, The Village Voice, Entertainment Weekly, New York Magazine, Details, Vibe, Fortune, and Real Simple. That's enough brands for multiple careers, but Bob has worked on all of them, and quite a few others in one lifetime. And he's still at it. Despite all the accolades, Bob is one of the nicest guys around. Those who've worked for him, and there are many, use descriptions like kind, supportive, mentor, constant, spokesman for our industry, and unwavering friend. Need proof? After a devastating injury in 2013 that put him in a coma for more than three weeks, Newman's friends and fans rallied to raise tens of thousands of dollars to help pay for his mounting medical bills and treatment costs, and to help him support his family. He's a popular guy. In 1998, along with Janet Froelich, Bob created the Magazine of the Year Award, given out annually by the Society of Publication Designers as its highest honor. Speaking of Magazine of the Year, you and I have both been lucky enough to be part of teams that were given this award. I was given the award for Fast Company. It was the third Magazine of the Year award. You've won it three times, Deb. Martha Stewart Kids won it twice, back-to-back, and then again later with Martha Stewart's Blueprint magazine. Do you remember that?
2: I do. I, I don't remember much about accepting the award. I remember a lot of partying after the first time.
0: Nobody remembers (laughs) because you go completely blank.
2: Exactly.
0: I do remember that when they announced that I had won, Fred Woodward stormed the stage and ran up and gave me a big hug and it was just so heartwarming and and such a recognition by the community, but my God, Fred Woodward himself, that was something.
2: Yeah, I don't remember the first time, but like I said, there was a huge party afterwards and we were, uh, the SPD was held at that massive rock and roll, I I wanna say stadium. Oh, (laughs)
0: the the Hammersmith.
2: The Hammerstein Ballroom, it was massive. That was either the first or the second time. But anyways, always quite an honor.
0: You know, we're supposed to act like they don't matter, but they kind of do.
2: I think that art directors, designers, need acknowledgement. Creative
0: people. Yes,
2: visual people. Because usually these, these awards go to editors who also deserve awards, but We're usually in the background somewhere, and SPD was instrumental in bringing to light the amazing contribution that art directors and designers and creative people have. You
0: know, before Magazine of the Year, the only award of its kind was the ASME National Magazine Awards. But even if a magazine won for design, it was awarded to the editor, not the creative director
2: right and so the society of publication designers was one of the very few venues for magazine art directors designers visual people and stylists and you know the team and um i always thought it was a little bit naughty too that we were getting that acknowledgement naughty yeah a little bit naughty like we were on the side getting all of these accolades I you think mean and not
0: recognizing our editorial partners
2: exactly <laughs> I think that the art department certainly deserved it. In most cases, the people who are winning those big awards.
0: Yeah. As I think Bob says, you know, think about awards however you want, but generally, at least in our profession, the awards have been given to the magazines who are actually doing the best work. I was trying to find a list of Magazine of the Year award winners over time, but all I could find was there was a book published by SPD called Solid Gold, which was, it was a sort of a... A Diary of the First 40 Years of SPD, and it had a list of the first handful of winners up to 2006. So the first ever winner was a magazine called Twice, which was a magazine about dance. Abbott Miller was the creative director. I'm not sure if he was at Pentagram at the time. He's now a Pentagram partner. Year two went to New York Times Magazine and Janet Froelich.
2: Well, let's go back to twice. It was a bit of a scandal twice. And I was a newcomer to SBD at the time, but I remember it was a bit of a scandal because the magazine twice only came out twice.
0: And rule number one for Magazine of the Year (laughs) is you have to come out at least three times,
2: right? Well, now there's a rule. But I think the hardcore monthly magazine staffs and the the weekly staffs were a little scandalized by that. Mind you, it was a beautiful magazine. It deserved to win.
0: So New York Times won it the second year, Fast Company the third, Esquire and John Corpix the fourth, Details and Rockwell Harwood. Fred won it for GQ, and then you won it two times, twice in a row. And then the record goes black. So at some point, we'll have to try to find a complete list of... Magazine of the Year Award winners, and we'll put it on our website. But now I think let's get to the interview. Let's meet Bob. Can't wait. I would love to know about young Bob, little Bobby Newman. Where'd you grow up?
1: Well, I grew up uh, in a suburb of Buffalo, outside of Buffalo. And um, uh, we actually lived in Larchmont for a couple of years because my father worked in New York for a few years. But mostly I grew up and went to school in high school, graduated from high school in a suburb of Buffalo.
0: Were your parents creative? Did uh, any of what you would end up becoming come from them?
1: My parents were very creative, I think, but my mother was a school teacher um, for many years. And and, um, my father worked for a chemical company as a purchasing agent. And um, to the extent that teachers are creative, I think my mother was was always artistic on a certain level, but they never encouraged, I was never encouraged around a lot of. Did you have siblings? I have one sister and she uh, had a career working for OSHA, really great career.
2: What do you remember um, about the, the first moment that you realized that you were creative and that there was something special going on in your brain? Um, that made you think that this was a career you might want to pursue?
1: Well, part of the problem was I was a terrible artist. I still am. I couldn't draw. And I had no, I was really uncreative in a traditional sense. Like I couldn't think of things. I couldn't draw. I couldn't paint. I couldn't, you know, make things. But what I always did was I made posters, even when I was little. And like when I was a kid, when, when I was little, my sister and I would take periodically when we'd go on vacations, we'd take all our toys and we'd put them all in the garage and we'd sell them to the neighbors. And what I would do is I would draw signs that I'd tack on trees and I'd take chalk and draw signs on the sidewalk that would say like, you know, come down to, I can't remember the address and buy all, you know, big sale, buy all the stuff. And we'd sell all this crap you know old baseball cards and comic books and dolls and stuff to our friends and then we'd get enough money to when we go on vacation we'd have money to buy you know ice cream and whatever um, so I always did signs. And, and in, in um, high school, I did signs all the time, lettering. I was like a mad letterer. And I was the art director, although I didn't know, it wasn't called that, but I was the art director of the high school arts magazine for uh-huh. um, two years yeah. when I was a junior yeah. and senior. So I art that was my first art director job. Although I it wasn't called that. I don't know what it was called.
2: I had the same experience in that I knew that I loved typography and packaging, but I didn't know what it was. I um, didn't
1: even know what an art director was. In fact, I I can remember a friend of mine after I graduated from college and went to work at something else, explained to me what an art director was. And I was like, oh, really? They have people that do that stuff? Like I had no, I, I had literally had no idea. And I had uh, before I became an art director, I had about three or four other careers before that,
0: including political organizer. I, I did. I worked
1: for a number of years as a political
0: organizer. I not what Barack Obama was?
1: Yeah, it was kind of like that. I mean, we I I ran a food co-op a, a small in a, a small town in Ohio, and then then we had a community organization that worked with low income people. You know, like one of the things we did was. At, you guys are too young to remember this I'm sure but in the early 70s there was a big uh, recession and um, things were really miserable especially in the midwest where I lived and we got this farmer to donate 10,000 pounds of potatoes you know so we went to his farm and we loaded them on a truck and we drove the truck back and we put them in bags and then we put signs in all the bars and 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 laundromats and churches and um, you know the next day the people came and we passed out 10,000 pounds of potatoes to everybody, all the people in the community, which was great. And that's the kind of stuff we did. Then I moved to Washington, D.C., and, and I worked on a political newspaper for about a year. I was actually the editor. It was a political group that was run by Dr. Spock. Benjamin Spock. And after that fell apart, I started working for the DC Statehood Party. That was a group of people that were organizing to get statehood in DC. That seemed like it was close at hand back then, but it still hasn't happened. And um, through that, I got a job in a local print shop. So for a year, I worked as a printer in DC. And, and that's really where I learned to do paste up and and uh, a lot of graphic design work as a printer.
0: Backing up, where, where did you go to college? Oh,
1: I went to college in Ohio at a place called College of Worcester it was like a a presbyterian religious college very square but i always did i always did to go back to what what was saying i always did signs and and i always did lettering and, and when i was in college People would ask me to letter whatever they would have, big sales or, or you know, anything. I was always doing lettering and people always knew that they knew my lettering. It was very distinctive. I still couldn't draw, but I could letter like mad. I could just take a magic marker and, and fill up a big piece of board, like, you know,
2: in minutes. Were you like most kids growing up who were sort of artistically inclined? Was that how you, you got attention for being cool? No,
1: I wasn't cool, but it was cool back then cuz it was coming out of the 60s being involved in you know left wing politics was cool and in retrospect i think that's really where my interest In magazines and publications started because I was obsessed from early teens with the underground press and the the left wing press, like the Black Panther Party newspaper and the Village Voice and, and, um, you know, East Village Other. And um, I was obsessed with those papers like crazy.
0: So you went from giving away potatoes to finally ending up in Seattle. How did you get to Seattle, by the way? And and talk about your experience. That I think this is your first magazine job, The Rocket.
1: Yeah, I got to Seattle because I moved out there in a, in 1977, I think. And it's, it's hard to think about this now. But at the time, Seattle was the farthest possible place you could go. And that was both a good and a bad thing because uh, there were like a lot of you know, mass murderers out there and, and Ted Bundy, if you remember him, like there were all these mass murderers out there. And it was like every nut job in the country just like tilted out. You know, it's like they turned the country and people just (laughs) (laughs) fell down into the Northwest or something. And so, you know, there were a lot of good people too, but it was, it was sort of like, I don't know, the go West young man kind of thing. It was like, first of all, it had a good vibe back then. Like everyone said, Oh, it's really cool out there. And and What,
0: What were you trying to get far away from?
1: No, I was I was trying to get at that point. I wanted to do some kind of magazine or newspaper, mostly newspaper. I think really it was I wanted to do a newspaper, like a, a alternative newspaper, and they had a ton of them out there. I mean, they had like four out there at the time. I think. I mean, they still had an underground newspaper out there. They had all kinds of stuff, and they had a really vibrant sort of alternative underground media scene. They had a Pacifica radio station, and it was just a cool place. And, you know, there wasn't a lot like that on the East Coast. And it just seemed like a place to move to where there would be a lot of opportunity. It sounds funny to say that now, but, you know, I was 23 or something, and and living was really cheap out there, which also sounds pretty funny now.
2: Was that right after college or...?
1: No, I spent a couple of years in DC working, when I when I did political work and, and working as a printer. And, and, and then I moved out to Seattle. I was like in my early twenties. And I, actually the rocket wasn't the first place I worked. Uh, Pat, the uh, first place I worked was an underground newspaper out there called the Northwest Passage. That was, you know, like the last, I mean, it was like the last sixties holdover. And they they voted on everything. Like, and they they, each page was designed by a different person and they rotate. It was like, like a, you know, a collective, and so a different person designed the cover every issue. I kind of
2: like that idea. Yeah, it was like
1: that, and uh, <laughs> and, and and then I worked on um, what they call now an alt weekly, but we didn't use that phrase back then. It was a weekly community newspaper called the Seattle Sun. I started out as a production manager, then eventually I became art director, and it was you know like one of the like like the Village Voice of Seattle basically, and at that point. I think my dream job was to work at the Village Voice, which I eventually did. But um, I was really, really, really into working at at a newspaper like that because it was so connected to the audience. Um, You know, and you would stay up all night and then you would see the newspaper out on the street for sale the next morning and and people would line up to buy it. And it was very exciting to see your work, you know, have that kind of impact right away. It was great. I love that. The great thing about working at a place like that is you would do like the worst thing and and like everyone would forget it the next week so it was
2: great you know it was a great yeah it's sport. like weeklies. yeah 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 like like like... where where you can pound it out and oh gee may have like totally bombed this week we'll get them next you know, week. Oh, yeah forget so, about it <laughs>
1: i mean it would be so bad that and you'd be like oh my god and then they would be gone in three days or something and then you know you'd have, you'd have a clean slate it was great <laughs>
0: Then you end up at the rocket. Yeah, then we talk we, about what the rocket was.
1: Well, the Seattle Sun was always kind of a, more, a marginally run operation, and, and we it didn't make a lot of money, and it was kind of rooted in the in the Seattle hippie world, and and um, things were changing culturally. You know, it was like a, a punk was starting, and and a bunch of us at the Sun decided to we would do a supplement called the Rocket, which was like a rock and roll insert. So we started it, and, and we. Ran it for about six months and, and they hated us. So we bought it from them and, and started on our own in like a ratty little storefront on Capitol Hill in Seattle. And it was great. I mean, there weren't, you know, Seattle was a great place, but there weren't a lot of jobs there. I was wrong. I mean, I was right, but I was wrong. There weren't a lot of good paying jobs there. And, and there was, we used to joke, it's, it's hard to also imagine like Seattle. Now they have Microsoft and Adobe and, you know, a bunch of, and Amazon. But back then they didn't, they had basically like one job. And if you were an art director, there were no jobs. So you had to kind of make your own job. So we had to make our own job. And a lot of the, and because so many of the people that started it were art directors, we had a rotating cast of art directors. Most of who eventually moved to New York, did their own magazines.
0: You look at your bio LinkedIn page. I think it actually would be easier to list the magazines you didn't work (laughs) at than than (laughs) the ones you did work at. Well,
1: the big big problem, which you may or may not know, uh, I don't like to broadcast this fact, but. Every editor who ever hired me was fired after they hired
0: me. Um, and not necessarily for making that decision?
1: N- no, but I mean, every single one was fired. And, and sometimes they were fired like the one in Entertainment Weekly was fired before I even got there. You know, like, <laughs> um, <laughs> but so every editor, every single one, I mean, you know, this old house, Reader's Digest, Fortune, twice, real simple Um Vibes, she wasn't fired, she quit. Um, New York magazine, y- you know.
0: You're making an argument <laughs> if, that if I was an editor, I shouldn't hire you.
1: That argument has been made, believe me. But so, you know, it's really hard to do a magazine without a, an editor who's a partner who you can work with. And Absolutely. Di- you know, that's the key. And there's different levels of that. Like you can have an editor who's just let you do whatever you want that's the best right like or you can have an editor who's you know a genius and and inspires you on or or you know who's an equal partner i mean any of those are good but if your editor's fired and you get a new editor and odds are you're not going to be long for that world you know and uh, well i read
0: i read an interview where you said and this is a quote i really like to move around and i think most art directors would agree you're like a hired gun in a lot of ways
1: well that that's true and i do like to move around and one thing i i wanted to do. You know, I had two sort of dream jobs that I wanted to do and, and one was the voice and I did that for a long time actually. And the other one was Vibe and I did that. And besides those two, there were lots of really great jobs. But I have a pretty short attention span. And I'm interested in a lot of stuff. And and you know, I I I like that I worked on a business magazine and a, a, a women's magazine and a, a entertainment magazine and a urban fashion magazine, that would be Vibe and an older person's magazine. Um, you know, I like the challenge of trying to adapt your your visual storytelling skills to different audiences and try and get inside their heads. I think the one thing is I, I generally worked at places where I had an affinity for the audience. So vibe was the hardest one where I was most out of tune, I think, with the audience, although the kids there really helped me a lot. But at each place I worked, I was really in the demographic, basically, of the magazine. So it wasn't that much of a stretch. All I had to learn was the lexicon of what they were dealing with but part of it was too i think it was sort of a challenge you guys know this and we get this all the time people would say oh well you do women's magazines you can't do fortune you know you you do uh, entertainment magazines you can't do a fashion magazine well that's not true you know i think there are some people who have affinity for certain styles but most good art directors i know man they can do anything you know for years i mean I don't know, Deb, you may may or may not have experienced this because you came, you know, I know you did for many years, worked in, in women's magazines. Yeah. But for years, that was used as an excuse to keep women from working at other kinds of magazines.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Totally. I know? totally concur. It, it It is hard for me to jump out of women's magazines. Although, you know, I got my start in editorial design at Rolling Stone. So
0: Hard because of other people or hard because of you?
2: It's harder to jump. You just don't get those opportunities. You know, you don't you don't get a a sexy uh, job. And I think most women have the same problem. You don't get a sexy job that's about men's fashion or, you know, because you're a woman and, you know, you can try. I mean, but it's much harder to jump when you're a woman out of the women's category.
1: And I think that holds true for other other genres, too. Like, you know, I I think people that have done hip hop magazines would face the same kind of prejudice I think trying to move to something like fortune because they'd say oh well you know you can't do fortune because you worked at Vibe or you worked at an entertainment magazine
0: we'll be right back print is dead is made possible with the support of mag culture read our online journal listen to our podcast and visit our shop to discover why we're convinced print is very much alive all available at magculture.com
2: You've worked with so many different editors. Is there one in particular that was your best partner or somebody that you worked really well with? You
1: know, I worked with Kurt Anderson twice, but only unfortunately for six months each time, once, because once he was fired and once folded. I worked with him in New York, and I worked with him at a magazine called Inside that was part of the inside.com. He was great. He was definitely one of the best editors. You know, because good editors, there's lots of aspects of a good editor. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, the most important aspect is attracting talent and keeping the talent happy and making the, the magazine a community of sort of joyful work and collaborative feeling. To me, that's the number one key. And if, if he or she does that, then everything else is gravy. And, and Kurt was the best at that, at getting people in there, letting them do their thing and, you know, building this community of like really super talented people. The editor I worked with at Entertainment Weekly, um, Jim Seymour, same thing. He was amazing. And, and he was another one who he wasn't threatened by young, talented people. And he brought in young, talented people of all kinds and let them do their thing. And he, this famous quote he told me, which I've repeated many times, is we were having this big argument about the cover one day in his office early on when I'd only been there a couple months. And he said, Bob, this is how it works you can do whatever you want inside the magazine. I trust you. You can do whatever you want to anything, but the cover is mine and you have to listen to what I tell you. And I thought that's genius. You know, like I can deal with that. You know, I want an editor like that who has a kind of level of trust, but also who's smart enough that, that I'll say, okay, I trust you on the cover, you know, cause you know, it's your thing and you want your doing. I mean, I've had others too. Um, you know, I don't want to leave any out, but, there have been plenty of others. Uh, Michael Caruso, who I worked with a few times, I worked with him at Details and um, and at some other places, was also really great. It's really, it's all about the editor. And you can, you guys know that, that when you see a magazine that where where there's this like renaissance and the magazine is rocking and it looks great, it's like, start with the editor, you know, because in most cases you can't do it without that person. and 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 there has to be this insane level of trust, you know, so that... When you pitch something, you're 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 not afraid to pitch it, no matter how crazy it is, and they're not afraid to say, "Okay, let's try it." And at the same time, when they shoot you down, you're not like pissed off and go sulk and like you know start stabbing people with Exacto knives <laughs> or something,
0: you know, because you know like uh, you, know, yeah, you know. Can what you, you tell you're doing. our young listeners what an Exacto
2: knife is? <laughs> <laughs> Relics from the past. Michael
0: Caruso was your editor at Details, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Details was, I think, the first place where I became aware of you, and um, I remember I actually used to buy Details before you did it, if I recall correctly. It was a black and white magazine printed on sort of cream paper. At least maybe the covers were like that.
1: That was back in the day. That was before condi Nast bought it, and then okay. Condé Nast started running it and they had a, a series of, of really talented art directors.
0: The work you did there, I would say it's the first time I really had an appreciation for the process of a redesign. You had a concept that involved the inspiration of Blue Note, maybe just talk about what your process was to get to that look. Well,
1: the the thing about details, which, which I, I loved what we did there is it's the classic example, I think, of how you really need a collaborative team all around to really make it work. You know, we had a brilliant photo editor, Greg Pond, who, who was just amazing. And we had a brilliant fashion director, uh, Derek Procope, who actually had worked at Vibe before he worked at uh, Details. And we had, a, you know, Michael Caruso, who was really supportive, and we could go in and just pitch anything. And he'd go, yeah, that sounds cool. And the staff was young and talented and deep and diverse. All of that helps, you know, it was definitely one of the most diverse places I worked except for for vibe and when Michael was I don't know maybe were you up for that job everybody was up for that
2: job. <laughs> I <laughs> certainly wasn't I know
1: a few people who were up for that there were Michael was like bless his heart he cast a wide net and he made everybody do a pitch you know it was very corporate and um, if you were up for a pat I wouldn't be surprised and <laughs> I went in and just did this pitch. And, you know, remember those, those blue note books had just come out. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: I were, have that. They were paperback uh, album size books. And to tell you the truth, I, I had never, it's not like I was a student of that stuff. I'd never heard of it until I saw those books. And suddenly I was like, Oh my God, I could do this. And um, that was always one of my things. In fact, Pat, you'll, you come into this because I used to always look at stuff and, you were one of the guys I used to look at and go, I, I could, I could almost do what he's doing. You know, it's like in my world. And so I, when I looked at, at Blue Note, I looked at that stuff and I thought I could do that, you know, and it's kind of happened. It's kind of Ocean's 11, kind of, that stuff was a uh, loungy stuff was kind of in right back then in the later nineties.
2: It was so, in the air.
1: Yeah. 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 So we pitched that to Michael and, and he went for it. And, and fortunately Greg, and, uh Pond and, and Derek Procope,
0: they really
1: went for it. And, you know, they just delivered these pictures and these fashion spreads that were all about that, you know. Yeah.
0: A lot of people might have had that same inspiration from those books, but they would have applied it to the wrong place. It was perfect for details.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and then, you know, then of course Blue Note came and threatened to sue us if we didn't stop oh, wow. after about wow. four issues. <laughs> So we sort of had to pivot a little bit and we sort of got into this. Um, I mean, we're influenced by this. Let's be influenced by this. So we started being influenced by more, a little later, stuff like this kind of Saul Bass stuff and this kind of 60s hipster stuff. Anything. Put all good. in the
0: same world.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anything. That if we're we good. want to get more granular about that kind of thing, what is your favorite part of making a magazine and your least favorite? <laughs> Well,
1: I think my favorite part, I really like working on the covers when I have that kind of freedom to to work on them. You know, unfortunately, this is not a criticism of any particular magazine, but the kind of freedom that one has these days is is much more limited by commerce and and a lot of other things. I used to really like coming up with covers that really connected with people. And back in the day when, when we actually sold magazines on newsstands and sold a lot of them, and we did a lot of cover testing. I really like that a lot. Like you know, when I worked at Real Simple and I worked at uh, Cottage Living, uh, we did a lot of cover testing, uh, both cover lines and cover images. You probably did a lot of that, Deb. At-
2: oh yeah. So is it the is it the sort of that kind of thing, the stuff that it's related to business that you like the least, the conceptualizing that you like of the covers and the drudgery of cover lines that you like the least?
1: That doesn't bother me. Um, In fact, I'm usually the one who's arguing for more cover lines because I like to really trash it up, you know. I I like, and what I like about the cover is what I really like about magazines in general is I like the work that connects with people and that really opens a communication with them. That's always what I liked about it was that when you, as a visual storyteller, an art director, a creative director, whatever you want to call it, you're, you're really opening up this conversation, a visual conversation, but it goes beyond that with people directly and you know i and it wasn't about selling copies because I wanted to make money for Time Inc you know, having those that was I could have cared less. It was about reaching as many people as possible and is it what you know to go back like when I worked at the Village Voice, what I used to like to do is go down and I would walk around look at the newsstands on um the whenever it came out Wednesday morning and just stand there and watch people buy it, you know and see how they reacted to it. I I just enjoyed that part of it. And whatever part of the magazine touches on that is my favorite part. I would say my least favorite part is, um, I don't know, I I just don't work that well with editors.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I think think the majority of art directors would say the same thing.
0: I read a lot of stuff about you. You know, I try to be as prepared as possible. Um, In Media Bistro, Greg Lindsay, who really loved covering magazines, wrote that there is no such thing as a Robert Newman look. And I think he's right. How do you think about that?
1: I I think most of the places where I worked, I inherited pretty strong visual directions. You know, they already existed. Um, You know, when I went to work at Entertainment Weekly, I, I inherited a design by Michael Grossman that was just like, you know, superb, sublime. And a lot of places, rather than redesigning, I just kind of developed a look based on the DNA of what was already there. You know, I'm not that original a designer, I have to tell you, it's just not my thing. I think that's not my strong suit. I think the the details example was a, a rare case where, you know, we came up with something really original and threw everything out. But usually I, don't, I haven't done that. And I've tended to also had a lot of really strong number two designers, art directors, and have deferred oftentimes to their skills because they were just like, had way better chops than I did. You know, when when I worked at EW, first Jill Armas and and then um, George Carabazos and Michael Pacone and Joe Kimberling and Florian Buckleda were, you know, my deputies. And like, you know, I just couldn't touch their chops and I just let them run with it, you know, and I had no problems with that. I um, mean, you
0: could make the argument that having a look is kind of lazy. Because I, th- I think you're right. I think, I mean, the whole thing from the time you learn design is to apply something specific to the audience and to the DNA of the magazine in our business.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think I have a look. I think my look tends, you know, with the exception of, of now, now my look is much simpler, but I, th- I think my look has always been basically simple. And, and, and at times I've, I've been you know, I certainly was influenced by all the stuff you guys did at Rolling Stone, you know, and and that kind of skeuomorphic design that you guys did so well that you know I have to control myself to not go there because I find it so alluring. But it's like a drug, you know. And mm-hmm. I think my own look, if there was a look, tends to be simple and big and bold. But you know, a lot of times people didn't want that. People wanted wanted. I'm sure you had this. Deb, when you left Rolling Stone, and I had it when I left Entertainment Weekly, everybody wanted Entertainment Weekly after I left Entertainment Weekly. And, and you know, I didn't want to do it because it was really inherently my thing. Yeah. But they all wanted it. I'm, I'm sure you, after you left Rolling Stone, everyone wanted you to be Fred Woodward Jr. or something.
2: I think at times. And I think it, it wasn't always appropriate.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah
2: it had its own life at Rolling Stone and not appropriate for a home magazine, for instance, you know, that should be, you know, more photography driven. So that was a bit of a weird thing for me.
1: You know, it's funny when you, when you talk about styles, I think a lot, I was looking through some old magazine stuff to study up for this. And, and you guys know this. so many magazine styles look, get so dated so fast, you know, and, and, we all have our embarrassing moments, you know, and all you have to do is go back to the 80s and you'll see a lot of really embarrassing moments. But um in the 90s, when once desktop publishing started. But you try to find styles that are timeless. I have to say, both of you guys are are really geniuses at that. And I really admire both of you because when I look at your old stuff, it looks like it was done today, you know, and it's like timeless. And not a lot of people can do that, you know. And the magazines we like that we look back at, you know, we archive, you don't cringe when you look at them, you go, oh, you know that.
2: I I sometimes cringe. (laughs) (laughs)
1: You you might cringe, but most of it, you don't, you know, like, it's just, you have timeless stuff. And if if you can hit that sort of timeless look, I think that's really what defines, you know, a great uh, publication designer is that from beginning to end, they don't look like they were trendy at any point. They just look like they stayed true to themselves and their look, was unique and original and worked from beginning to end, you know, and that's that's what defines a great I'm not at that level, I have to say I'm just a copycat, you know, I'm just a stylist. I'm proud to be a stylist. You know, I can copy anything and I like to copy.
2: <laughs> okay. It's time to close your eyes and think about Bob Newman. Where are you sitting? Of course I can see where you're sitting. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> And what are you doing, working on?
1: You mean at this moment in my life, what am I working on? I guess so. Well, I'm working at home. I'm doing all my work remotely now, and I have been for the last two years. I'm working as creative director of This Old House magazine, and um, theoretically, I'm also directing a bunch of digital stuff that they do, but I I think I can safely say I don't love doing that, and I try to delegate as much of that as I can.
2: I had a question that we kind of skipped, and maybe this is a good segue into it, in that I'm trying to do digital now as well, too, and I'm just wondering, you know, how you feel about that. What makes, uh, is a good UX designer the same as a print designer? What are the differences?
1: You know, that's a, that's a that's a good question. I think print designers have something really unique, and that's that they're editorial designers, and they... Think holistically about the content and the design they're visual storytellers. I've used that phrase before, but that's what they are, and they're also curators you know which is what you learn when you work in a magazine, and they're also very functional like the you know and, and that's where they intersect with UX because UX is obviously all about function and my problem with UX is that there's no art, it's all commerce and function. there's nothing wrong with that. It's just I, I don't want to do that right. Um, I'm much more interested, and, and also with UX, it's very scientific, and there's nothing wrong with that. But what I like about magazines is that periodically people get a chance to expand, or have anyway, to expand the envelope and and expand the the language, and expand the way people think, and and you can be noticed. But the thing about UX is you're not supposed to be noticed, and I'm sorry, but I'm an egotistical asshole you know and i want to be noticed
2: <laughs> you know? this gets back to the being cool thing i want
1: to be noticed and not only that but i want
2: you do like to be cool and it does it, it is something special to have people see your work and love it it's wonderful to have visible to work on a visible project but
1: it's not only about me it's about wanting to and this probably goes back to my whole you know, my little political career, which wasn't that successful, is it's about wanting to impact people, you know, and and I think one of the things about magazines and that I've always enjoyed working, certainly with the visual people, is that the visual people in magazines tend to be more socially conscious and empathetic, and like they care about stuff. The The art directors and photo directors and Production people and and artists and illustration photographers, they care about things and they care about people and they want the world to be a better place. And the work that they do, ultimately, most of them want the work to contribute to a better world on whatever level that means. And, you know, that was always why I liked working in magazines, partly because you can make the world a better place. I don't see UX design as doing that. I think it makes people money and that's fine. You know that's why I have no future in that field, as my boss constantly reminds me
0: <laughs> I don't want to expand on my feelings about UX and the whole digital thing because
1: I could go on all night <laughs> no I mean, I think the thing about UX that's interesting to me is it's problem solving and it's it's functional and you know so it's but like it's
0: not magazine design and it's not even no it's, it's not, not really cool creative it's
1: no it's not creative and i think the the the,
0: it's more technical it makes me mad and when i I get mad i swear and it and i want to talk to you about swearing because it's a fundamental skill in the magazine you haven't heard any
2: swearing yet not enough yeah
0: (laughs) do you have a preferred swear is there a greatest (laughs) swear you've ever heard
2: are we going to get censored?
1: Well, I, here's the thing. I, you know, I worked at the Village Voice and I worked at Vibe, so I heard a lot of curse words and, you know, but since I started working at Real Simple and I worked at ARP and Reader's Digest and this old house, you can see where I'm going with this, you guys. Not only were these magazines where the readers were older and the environment was more sedate, but there also were predominantly women's staff. And, you know, I've had enough problems with anger, believe me, at work. And I I try not to be that guy who curses, you know. And so I don't um, curse.
0: I learned everything I needed to know about cursing from um, a woman who worked for me. Yeah, so, I just don't. I mean, I it's think... Not it's not a gender thing.
1: I, I just... I have two kids. I, you know, I I'm still shocked when they curse in front of me. And I listen. I'm all for putting curse words into the
0: magazine. Well, there
2: must be some expletive. There must be some expletive there that you like to use.
0: Yeah. What's your favorite? My favorite curse word? Yeah. I, what's the one that comes most naturally? Um, Mine's motherfucker. Yeah. Well, yeah,
1: that would probably be mine.
2: Only.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what's yours, Deb?
2: I don't know. I'm sitting here trying to figure out what it is. She's Canadian. I, they I don't have curse.
0: A- <laughs> They don't curse in Canada. I have
2: I have a lot of funny sayings uh, that I'm sure drive people crazy. Like, "Oh, you wrecked it." Um, <laughs> they're not usually. I have to say, I probably like the F word because people aren't expecting it to come out of the mouth of a you know a little girl from Canada.
1: Well, and also uh, the, uh, the the uh, acceptance level of curse words has expanded so much that really the F word is the only one that's left because, you know, I mean, everything else is printed. I think the New York Times, except for New York Times for kids, the New York Times probably prints every word imaginable except, you know, the the kid.
0: Swearing serves its function. um, (laughs) Prevailing wisdom says we learn from our mistakes. (laughs) What is the biggest mistake you've ever made at work?
1: Probably the biggest mistakes were not hiring somebody. But you don't mean like that. Like, I I think there were a few times I should have hired somebody that I didn't. And I'm still really embarrassed about that.
2: Now that we're really getting into the nitty gritty, (laughs) you can't have been in this business for that long without being fired, right?
1: Right. I was fired
2: many times. So what's what's your best getting fired story?
1: The best story... And actually to go back to Michael Caruso, I owe this all to Michael Caruso. When I was hired by him at details, he said, dude, you got to have a severance letter. And I was like, you know, cause I was an art director, like art director, you can have a set. Sever- what is that? You know, how do you do that? And he said, look, I'll show you how to do it. So he showed me how to do it. And I had a severance letter. And so I had a severance letter. So <laughs> after that, you know, like Condi Nast bought my weekend home when they fired me, which was great. And then, um, when fortune fired me, you know, that I sent my first kid to college. And um, then when uh, I forget, I got severance three or four times. I can't remember, but having severance was great. And I don't have it anymore, unfortunately, but, <laughs> but having severance meant that when I was fired and I, I mean, I'm joking about it, but I also think it's really good. Like you shouldn't have to worry if you get fired. You shouldn't go through life having to worry. Oh, I'm going to get fired. You know, what's going to happen to my kids, you know, my house, blah, blah, blah. If you have severance, you can just do your job. And if they don't like you, they fire you. And you're fine, and you have a cushion, and and that's the way. That
0: yeah. I've never heard of a sort of proactive preparation for getting fired letter. Well, you just have a
1: severance if they fire you. you get you know whatever six months
0: or. But you write this.
2: But is that long winter?
1: before you get fired? Yeah, that's part of your deal when they hire you. That world doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, exactly.
2: I haven't been fired, but I'm wondering in, in this climate, do you feel like a lot of people are all constantly worrying that they, they are going to be fired? They should be.
1: Yeah, yeah I would. Yeah. I'm, I worry about it every day. I think, you know, I, I, I mean, it's never pleasant to get fired. And I had a combination of magazines folding and getting fired.
2: But a magazine folding isn't really getting fired. Yeah, but it
1: helps to get severance when it folds. <laughs> That's always good.
2: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But getting fired is like, no, nope, we're moving on.
1: You know, they call you in. They always fire you on You know how it goes. Well, you don't if you haven't been fired, but generally they fire you on a Thursday. That's pretty common. And then they call you in and they say, I need to have a meeting with you. And you walk in and if you see the HR person there, you know where this is going.
2: Oh, boy.
0: You know. We'll be right back.
2: Your contributions are the lifeblood of this podcast. Here's how you can support us in this work. Number one, become a sustaining patron by making a monthly donation. Or number two, make a one-time donation in the amount that works best for you. Visit printisdead.co support for more information.
0: In, in 2013, you suffered a traumatic head injury that put you into a coma and on a respirator for almost three weeks. Can you talk about what happened?
1: Well, I, I fainted. I was on a trip with my daughter and I fainted and hit my head. And, um, you know, I suffered brain injury, basically. And um, I had a seizure. And so that, yeah, you're right. I was in a coma for all
0: Did you just days. go out cold at that moment or did you no, actually actually, I, I
1: passed out and hit my head and then I woke up and um, then they came and put me in a, an ambulance. And I, I think I passed out before I got to the
0: hospital. Where uh, where were you working at this time? I was a
1: freelancer, oh, actually. God. I'd been laid off by, uh, fired rather, by um, Reader's Digest, and I was freelancing.
0: I so this is the worst possible moment that something like this could happen.
1: Yeah, fortunately, I had insurance, though. I still had, my, my insurance was still going.
0: And you had two young kids?
1: Two young kids, yeah. And wow. I was a single parent because I was... Separated from my
0: wife. So, three weeks in the hospital without waking up.
1: Yeah. In fact, they, um, Scott Davis at uh, ARP sent me an old copy of Fortune from like the 30s with a note saying, Put this under Bob's nose while he's in a coma, and the smell of the magazine will bring you back the life. (laughs) But the kids were like, Putting this old fortune under my nose while I was laying there.
2: (laughs) It was inspiring to see how the community rallied to your aid. How are you now? Are you How are you feeling?
1: Well, I'm pretty good. I, I, now I'm at the age where I don't want to complain about any health things because, you know, I, I know people that are no longer with us. So I'm just happy to be here. And people were really super. I mean, if people, if I hadn't gotten that kind of support, I don't know what would have happened because, you know, my kids were both in school and, and,
0: And this is, this was really before things like, um,
1: it was the early days of the kind of GoFundMe thing. In fact, I don't think GoFundMe even
0: existed. I had no idea.
1: I, I forget who put it together. It was probably Michael Grossman and, he was involved and and um jeremy leslie was involved and and um jill was a,
0: involved. as yeah. terrible as the injury and the tragedy and the situation you were in it must make you feel so good that so many people thought so highly of you that they rallied
1: it was pretty amazing it did it made me feel great you know it was really touching and it, it was a lot of love and people freak out i mean i experienced this when i was younger when i was in my 20s i had a life threatening illness and um people freak out when people are close to death when you're younger you know i mean that was because you don't expect your contemporaries to die or to you know Yeah, it is uh, shocking. when, mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. someone you were you know, gets really sick or die, it's shocking i mean and mm-hmm. you know i'm not diminishing what people did but it's shocking it, it's like a, a shock to the system and you know, I think people really, you know, I love what they did. It was just great. I mean, well,
0: great. and it, it wasn't even just in this country. Didn't Jeremy Leslie put together a
1: Yeah, he put together that fundraiser great, over there? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and uh, it's the best kind of tragedy where great art comes out of tragedy. And they, they put together a magazine called My Favorite Magazine uh, that was a collection of people's um, favorite magazines from, you know, back in yeah. the day. It was great. It was a great piece of art. And, and they raised a ton of money. I mean, I can't tell you. And I had no money. I was living, you know, like freelancers. You know how it is. Paycheck to paycheck, basically. (laughs) Job to job. And I couldn't work. The heart part wasn't so much being in the hospital, but I couldn't work for, couldn't walk. I came out and I was in a wheelchair and I couldn't work for about a year afterwards because my brain was so messed up. And it's still kind of messed up, to be honest. I'm not looking for sympathy, but.
2: I'm sure that, that there are some challenges coming back and the fight to get back to work and feel somewhat normal.
1: Yeah, it took a while. It definitely took about a year. And I was, at the time I was working with, um, I had a partner, Linda Rubes, who was both my life partner and also a work partner and I would try working on projects and she would say, you know, you're not, you're not there. Like you, you you know, you can't do this, you know, and I I just couldn't, you know, when, when you have a brain injury, you just, you can't get to that place that you want to get to It's hard to explain, but I just couldn't sustain work for a really long time. Anyway, it was great that people helped me out. It was so great. So amazing.
0: Can you mark the point where you felt kind of like, back to normal. I
1: think when I when I got hired at this old house which was about 2 years or so after my accident. I I couldn't do freelance. It just was too hard for me. I just couldn't focus on it and I needed to be in an office with people and and to have a like a rhythm to get back into a rhythm and and when I started maybe about two and a half years after when I started working at, that saved my life. I mean, besides the everyone chipping in, that really saved my life. Then go, going to work when Scott, who was the editor, hired me at this whole house, that just saved my life because I, I needed that kind of rhythm.
2: Bob, I think the first time that I actually met you was at SPD and you were running Magazine of the Year and I was doing Martha Stewart Baby. How many years have you actually been Running magazine of the year at SPD, and what what's that been like, and how has it evolved?
1: Well, we started it, I think, when I was at Details, and Janet Frolik from the New York Times Magazine, and I were the co-chairs. It was probably like SPD, I want to say thirty-three, maybe, and they're up to fifty-seven, so it's been that many years. What's that? Like Twenty-two years, I think. So I, you
0: you were there at the beginning.
1: We we can't, We Janet and I wanted to do something at the. We, we thought it was odd that they didn't have kind of a finale drum roll kind of moment at SPD. They just kind of gave the awards and then everyone kind of split to start drinking and stuff. And we wanted to have like a love bomb at the end, kind of like, and now, you know, the grand finale. And so we, that's all we could, we thought this will do it magazine of the year. Uh, it meant a lot more back then maybe than it does now. And I think it worked. It, it kind of focused, like, you know, over the years, I think generally the Wright magazine has won. It's been their time when they've won. I mean, you know, obviously with any awards, there's problem. People have beef with it. But in general, it's been a great acknowledgement of who's just the doing the star work that year. And I mean, I'm always happy. You know, it's, it's really been a great, great award and a great acknowledgement. I don't think it's changed that much, Deb, when I think about it. The biggest problem has been that I don't think it's such a problem, but that it's dominated by, you know, the same 10 magazines or 10 right. art directors. Right. Um, but, you know, that's the case with all awards in general. And the, the one thing that changed is a few years ago, we expanded to brand of the year, which, which I know SPD is trying to make, given the nature of publishing now, we're trying to make brand of the year, the, the ultimate mm-hmm. award and, yeah. and magazine of the year is like now the, the second biggest award.
0: It's hard to argue with the fact that the magazines that win those, the magazine that win the most awards, do represent the best work being done. I mean, you can separate the people who can't afford to enter.
2: I don't think there is another award for you know art directors, as we know it, at the the head of the magazine team. I don't think there is an award that has really ever meant so much. I know it's evolved, and brand of the year is now a reflection of what we all do, which is not just print, but Instagram or whatever is needed for that brand to put that brand forward. One
1: more thing I want to say about Magazine of the Year is in the way we do the judging, it's always been the only category that all the judges vote on. Like, you know, the, the judging, most judging is compartmentalized in whether it's at SPD or any other place where small groups of judges vote on different categories. But for Magazine of the Year, every judge who judges which is a really diverse group of people gets to vote so I, I think it's really representative of the general like you were saying, Pat, it's sort of where people are at like people respect this magazine this year and that's the one they vote for you know
0: but it's interesting to think about the relevance of design in this world that it's right a small group of people are doing great work, but what does that say about the business is is that this creativity is not that important at most magazines?
1: well, I think it's a it's a weird dynamic right now because There are magazines and publications, I think, that are doing the most brilliant work that's ever been done or that they've ever done. I mean, I really feel strongly about that. I feel, for example, that the New York Times across the board is just operating at such a brilliant level, you know, from front to back that no one has ever been at. I mean, and it's just such a brilliant fusion of edit and visuals and photos and art and design and then when you drill down, like the kids, the, the thing Deb does and the magazine and the special sections that they do and, and the, the awareness that they have that they, you know, like they did a special that at-home section that they did during the um, peak of the quarantine that, that sort of replaced the travel section, I think. Just genius. And, you know, they're not afraid to experiment. It's just amazing. They've never, nobody's ever been at that level. And, and I feel that New York Magazine has been operating at that level for years and every time I look at it, I think, oh, my God, you know, like the, the, the stuff that Tom Alberti and Jody Kwan are doing is just like, whoa. I mean, and they do it every, now it's every two weeks, but still like over and over and over again, they're redefining, you know, what they do. And it's just, and, and at the same time, doing really provocative covers that a lot of other people can't do. It's phenomenal. And then The New Yorker, too, I think, has been operating at that level. And some others, you know, like Bon Appetit. I think Michelle Allen is still there. I mean, just whoa.
2: Yeah, she's not there, but yeah. But she uh, was. I yeah, she was. I
1: mean, and just mind-boggling. And and what um he's not, I think he left too. Um, Emmett Smith at National Geographic was like, the magazines never look better. And then there's a lot of people doing really skillful work at a technical level I could never imagine doing. But it's very technically skilled you know they just don't have the in many cases they don't have the palette they just don't have the the runway to do what's needed whether it's and and by the way and they also don't have the editors like they leave a lot to be desired I
2: i think a lot of it has to do with support yeah and support for print it can't just be everybody's moving to digital that's clear but let's do what we can with what we have
1: I mean, obviously, the magazines I mentioned, what distinguishes them is they have brilliant editors, and they have editors who are giving the support and the inspiration. And the other thing that's missing now, unfortunately, is you don't have those launches anymore. Like, you just don't have launches. Like, really, I say this with a lot of respect, but the, the, the most exciting launch this year was the Pickleball magazine that Jill Armas did. And that's great. I mean, genius, you know? No, I mean, she's the best. But it used to be there would be like this magazine and this magazine and this magazine, or... Or somebody would do a whole, like we did at Details you were talking about earlier, like a whole revamp. Like that stuff just doesn't happen anymore. And it's not a criticism of the art directors because they, I mean, those art directors that are working at places like Fast Company or Good Housekeeping, or they're doing genius work, you know. But you have editors and you got to have your runway and you got to have an environment. Magazines do not exist in a the vacuum. They exist as, a, as an expression of the culture that they come out of. And they're just a business now. That's what they're just just trying to make money and survive.
2: Yeah, I think that a lot of the digital products, you end up in like a a website or even an app for the most part. There's this push to make us all just box fillers. Just fill that box and that's it. And I I don't feel like I've been working in that kind of environment. or been working that way. I'm thinking about much more than just what goes in the box. Yeah, I
1: mean, this is the challenge that we were talking about earlier is how do you inspire young people to get into this field when there are obvious limitations and another limitation is the entry level jobs just aren't there anymore i don't know how you guys started out but i didn't start out like art directing entertainment weekly you know i moved up the ladder you know and every everybody i know like they started out in the production i mean wyatt mitchell who you guys know you know who became the creative director of the new yorker he was you know worked With me as a production guy at Details, you know, you had all those entry level jobs so people could get in and learn the trade, the craft. Those jobs don't exist anymore. There's no more production department. There's no more imaging department. There's no more copy department for editors. That's why you have the editor problem because, you know, you used to have half a dozen junior editors who were all really smart and competing against each other. They're not there anymore. If you don't have that entry level thing, And just to extend that, you don't have those, like you guys, you both worked at music magazines, music publications. I did too. That was a place where you could start out, right. And have a lot of freedom, you know, musician magazine, Pat, how many people came through there? Right. Like, you know, Corpix and you and they, uh, who David did? Carson, Dave Carson, Gary Kepke. Those magazines don't exist anymore. The yeah. all weeklies that I came out of, they don't exist anymore.
2: That that sort of artistic forum for typography and conceptual art even doesn't really exist. So no, it's a different world.
0: We'll be right back. Print is dead is made possible with the support of the Society of Publication Designers. The SPD powers the future of visual storytelling, setting the standard for editorial excellence and shaping the future of visual culture. For more information, visit spd.org.
2: Bob, you've been at this a long time. How have our jobs as art directors, creative directors, design director, what have you, how has the, because the landscape has changed so much, have the rules changed? Is it a different job? How is it a different job? Well,
1: I think it's interesting because I've probably been at it longer than both of you, but you've been at it long enough to see, I think our jobs got much better and we got a lot more respect and a lot more responsibility and and a lot more control for lack of a better word when i started out art directors in a lot of times were just decorators like they were just supposed to make everything look pretty and fit and you know they certainly weren't supposed to have impact on the content in any way
0: we weren't partners
1: Yeah, no. And that definitely changed. Partly, I don't exactly know why, all the reasons, but partly because of desktop publishing and partly because I think the skill level of art directors and design directors, we just were much better at what we did. And people had to recognize that we knew what we were doing and we could take their magazines to a place that they couldn't without us. And it used to be that you could have a butt-ugly magazine and and they were making money hand over fist, like newspapers. It didn't matter. The magazine could be the most butt-ugly thing in the world. and they made a fortune then you couldn't do that you had to have a good looking magazine and things like rolling stone and entertainment weekly and fast company they they changed that dynamic you know so you couldn't you had to have a talented art director a design director and you had to work with them And, and also i think generationally the editors changed like you got these editors who are much more visually oriented which and they have much more respect in most cases so that was good our job changed really well until you know, magazines started the Great Crash and everything a few years ago, and now I feel like in many cases we're just, you know, we're we're holding the pieces together, and and um, you know, I think I think in many cases we have a certain institutional memory, and so we know what magazines are supposed to be and how they're supposed to work, and younger editors I think need that from us, so that's good, and mm-hmm. that's something a lot if, of editors if
2: they're doing. willing to.
1: If they're willing to, but that's something yeah. a lot of younger editors coming up don't have. They don't yeah. have that kind of knowledge and that sense of visual storytelling. So there's still a role for us, but I think it's much more about production and producing mm-hmm. and managing and much less about creatively expanding the the definition of what a magazine is and can do.
2: I had a question that, about something that I think about a lot, which is we've seen some very old brands over the a hundred years, you know, talking about Vanity Fair, Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, the New Yorker. I don't know how old it is, but, you know, New Yorker is doing quite well moving into sort of the digital age and holding on to its branding. But there are some really big brands that you think about looking at them on the phone and you know that they're just not going to be able to make that leap out of print into digital. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts on that are.
1: Well, you know, magazines have runs, I think, and they're not destined to last forever. And you know, they have good runs. I'm going to make an analogy here that I think you guys will get that magazines are essentially like rock and roll music. You know, they're like rock bands and they have runs and they put out a bunch of good albums and they're really popular. And then they get old and many of them just you know, they go away because their time has come and gone. And, and a lot of that is because, like I said before, magazines don't exist in a the vacuum. Their responses to cultural moments, you know, Real Simple or Martha Stewart Living, didn't come out of the ether and become magical. They were a response to where women's heads were at at the time. And they connected in such a brilliant way that they were a success. Same with Entertainment Weekly, which now, by the way, is a monthly, which says all you need to say about magazines. Um, <laughs> But like rock music, you know, rock music used to be an essential thing for our lives. It was like we lived and died for rock music. You couldn't wait till the next single or the next album or whatever came out. And, you know, rock music is not urgent anymore and it's not essential. It's time has come and gone. You know, I'm not talking about pop music or R&B or hip hop, but just rock and roll music. It's just it's not a really dynamic cultural force that moves the culture anymore and neither do magazines. You know, we have to accept that fact, you know. There's a new paradigm. I don't know what it is.
2: I think a lot of it has to do with trend. But I'm wondering if there's, you know, for instance, a big brand like Time magazine or National Geographic. Like how do they move into the digital age and slowly let go of a print when the print was so it seems to me that there might be a way, but, but and, and maybe that's a bad example because they're probably doing okay with that. But I just feel like there's some short-sightedness in terms of that switch over to the digital platform that it should be doable. But but does it have to do with a shrinking visual? What, what National
1: Geographic is not a good example because they're they're so attuned to the modern era because they're they they do TV that's what they do in video. Right, right. right. Um, I think the New Yorker and New York Magazine are probably and the New York Times for that matter. Those are the places to look at how storied brands where the print is still essential to their DNA and to their readers' identification, how they move and and. I think in the New Yorker's case, which is probably a good one, because I don't know about you guys, but I don't pay that much attention to their digital side. But, you know, with them, it's been a matter of diversification and, and coming up with the New Yorker festivals and and the um, Cartoon Bank, which they made a fortune off of, you know, and sort of figuring out ways to leverage their brand yeah. and, and also really drilling down and identifying their readers And, you know, jacking up the cost of the subscription, it's like really expensive to buy. You know, the New Yorkers are really expensive hit. Mm -hmm. And I think New York Magazine has just brilliantly fused the um, digital and the magazine, but they don't try to do the magazine. Their digital presence is not a replication of the magazine. It's just digital. And the Times is the same way. Sometimes, like, I'll read a story in the Times, and I won't even remember that I've read it online because it looks so different, you know, like... I'll read something in the Sunday times. I was like, Oh, wait a minute. I forgot. I read this three days ago online mm-hmm. the, because what they, they don't try to do is to re, this whole replication thing that we all fell for. Mm-hmm. Like with the, um,
2: yeah. the yeah, apps and
1: stuff was such a big mistake. Mm-hmm. You gotta,
2: you have to leverage what you're good at.
1: Yeah. The print magazine is the print magazine.
2: Yeah.
0: This is the inquiry that, that launched this podcast for me. But kind of a meandering question, so bear with me. I'm still trying to figure out what this question is. But along the lines of what Deb was asking, when print is dead, where can a magazine maker take these unique format-specific skills? Magazines, you know, they were they were the product of editors, designers, photographers, illustrators, typographers, writers, working together to combine the skills to make these beautiful objects. And they really were beautiful objects. And they did it on a schedule. And these objects had a life individually and as part of an ongoing relationship with their audiences. There's really nothing else like them. And you could say that a lot of these indie magazines that are popping up kind of preserve that spirit, but but on the large scale that publishing was, big magazine publishing companies, I don't really see an outlet for those kind of skills to be applied. Do you?
1: Well, I think there are a lot of companies and a lot of brands They're scooping up magazine people to work on what they think is stuff that magazine people can do, you know, and a lot of it is branding and a lot of it is um, native stuff. Um, You know, the the Times does a lot of that and everybody does a lot of that now. I don't have a lot of interest in that, but I think there's room there for people to do work and to do good work. And I think I see it at the Times, a lot of the Native stuff is pretty interesting and creative.
0: But, you know, where you talk about outside of media, where companies, brands are scooping up that talent, what they're trying to get is they're trying to establish that relationship that magazines had with audience and build an audience like that. Of course. It's debatable if they can actually do that.
1: Of course. Apple hired all those magazine art directors because they wanted to make magic with Apple News. Well, you guys, I don't know how much time you spend with Apple News, but really... I don't think it takes the genius level of the people I know who've been hired by Apple to do that stuff. I just don't, you know, but God bless them because they have families to support and they're good folks.
2: Yeah, absolutely. But I, I don't know, is that what they're doing over there? I never knew what actually they, they do at Apple <laughs> or are they will Well,
1: whatever they do, God bless them, you know, and I, I support <laughs> them and I encourage everybody who can get a gig over there to get a gig, like go for it. Cause it's good. And they're not doing anything bad, you know. I don't know. I think I don't think magazines are going away. I think the the challenge is how can all of us and new people coming up make magazines be better and be more dynamic? And and to go back to my rock and roll analogy, like honestly, I don't think there are a lot of magical new rock and roll bands coming up. You know, there are not a lot of Pearl Jams or Jimi Hendrix's or you know, whatever you're your linear sort of point of references. But some of the best rock shows I've seen in my life are shows that I saw done by people in their 60s and 70s. I mean, just magnificent stuff. And I think that's the, the level that we as magazine people have to strive for. Like, people have these chops to die for. I mean, they're just chops forever now. And you just got to get in a situation where you can use those chops and find your audience. And listen, the audience is not going to be, we're not going to be selling 400,000 copies on the newsstand like we sold at Real Simple or 200,000 like we sold at Vibe. Those days are gone. But you can still impact an audience and it's probably not going to be a young audience. That's the key. It's just not going to happen. It's not there. It's going to have to be an older audience. just like when you go to a rock music gig and really, I mean, the joke about rock music now is there's a bigger line at the men's room than at the women's room, because it's all these guys who have to pee every 30 minutes, you know? I mean, trust me, that's what it's like. (laughs) I mean, I went to see Brian Wilson and people were dying, like they lying for the men's (laughs) room, the women were all like, we've never seen this before, you know, like, but you have to have, you have to have that connection with a community and you have to be essential to a community. And you have to be in a place where you're dictating a conversation to people. But where magazines worked, where they were essential is that they were, and I don't know how to get past this because they reached out to you directly. So I didn't know where you guys grew up, but where I grew up, you know, I would find a magazine and and it was my life connection to another world, like the Village Voice, of Ramparts, you know, which I adored, you know, you'd find mm-hmm. a magazine, and you'd read it and pass it around to your friends, you know, it was like, like passing around a a forty five record that you got you know it 's like when punk came out we 'd pass around these little forty fives The magazine was your lifeblood and your connection, and that 's what those indie magazines don 't have because they 're just like coffee table books that are just supposed to look good on your i mean really they 're just you know objects of art that look pretty they 're just decoration they're they 're not editorial design they 're just they're just decoration. They're not real.
0: A lot of them are missing that sort of urgent content. So they haven't. The
1: thing about magazines is no matter what magazine you ever worked on, your goal was to reach as many people as possible and be a success. It didn't matter whether you're working at Musician or Vibe or Rolling Stone or Village Voice. You wanted it to blow up, right? Like you want it to blow up. And when people heard you work there, they'd go like, oh my God. Yeah. Like when I worked at Vibe, man, when, when people heard I worked at Vibe, they would like, they would just like flip out, you know, it was like, a, you know, it was like magic. You know, you guys worked in magazines like that. It was like, you'd go and they say, where do you work? And say, I work at so-and-so. Oh my God, what's so-and-so like, you know?
2: Yeah. Martha Stewart was certainly that way. Exactly, right? And in the early days, Rolling Stone was, you know, wonderful. I'm
1: embarrassed to say that the magazine I got the most shine from was real simple. Like, oh my God, <laughs> people love
2: that magazine. It has a cult following. Yeah. Bob, how do you want to be remembered? How do you, how do you think people... People will remember your your work
1: i think what i'm most proud of is where i gave people a chance to do their best work illustrators and photographers and designers who worked for me where you know they could just come in and do amazing things and what you know whether they were young illustrators or young photographers or older for that matter i think that's what i'm most proud of that giving people a chance and giving them a voice and sometimes they were people that like you know how guys know how it was back in the day and it's still that way like people of color or women or gay people or whatever, you know, they couldn't get a, you know, a lot of them, they couldn't get a break, you know, and whenever you could give anybody like that, a break, You're just somebody who was weird. You know, we all knew that, you know, that person who was weird and you gave him or her a break and it's like, you know, became a star. Like to me, that's great. You know, I mean, that's a legacy I think that we would all strive for. I think magazine in general are so temporal that, you know, maybe someday some kid will look at some magazine I worked at and go,
0: oh, really? How did they do that? You know? (laughs) Keep up with Bob at his amazing website, Numenology.com, where in addition to seeing what he's up to, you can find a deep, deep archive of incredible magazine work and learn a lot about magazine history or follow him on Instagram at Numenology.
2: Print is dead. Long live print is a production of Modus Operandi Design. For more information, visit our website, printisdead.co. Or if you're an optimist, longliveprint.co. Follow us on social media at printisdeadpod. Please give us a like and a review on your favorite podcast app. It really helps. Thanks very much for listening.
0: This episode was made possible by Commercial Type. Commercial Type is proud to announce Feature, a dark and stylish new serif typeface. Diagonal stress, low contrast, and sharply angled head serifs conspire to give the face tension, dynamism, and immediacy. See it at CommercialType.com.